0: I've been bemused by the response to this whole thing. I mean, like to, to me, when a, when a new pathogen comes comes along, regardless of its origins, uh, the right answer is to figure out how to get sick people well and um, protect the vulnerable, and then otherwise allow your immune system to be upgraded through uh, exposure in normal life. I and mean, that's what evolutionary biology would teach us. I mean, it's, it's not not a time for panic ever, for for a variety of reasons. Panic does nothing good. And, and, and yet we tried this experimental technique of, of lockdowns and then tried to cover up for the failure of that with uh, v- vaccines that were uh, very poorly vetted, you know, horribly messaged. And then, uh, and then went further, once, once people were skeptical, like, I'm not sure that I want that shot. They said, oh yeah, well, here's your mandate. Now you have to get it. Um, and then when the mandates uh, failed, uh, n- now you've got this long litany of egregious failures that have led to all kinds of other crises and and now you've got a ruling class that's like well pay pay no attention to those failures just now now a uh, rally around the Ukrainian flag and hate on Putin you know so it's all a it's all a, a distraction really.
1: Well, welcome to the New Flesh podcast the podcast you deserve my name is Jonathan Astro and with me is the spectacular Ricky O'Pak. Ricky what's up?
2: What's up? I'm uh, pretty excited we've got we've got a big guest in the house for an interview today. Um, hopefully everyone's heard of the Great Barrington Declaration but if you haven't uh, you will by the end of this podcast we're talking to uh, Jeffrey Tucker. Let's do it. Jeffrey A. Tucker is the founder and president of Brownstone Institute, a nonprofit organization focusing on public health, economics, and the philosophical foundations of freedom, with a particular focus on post pandemic rebuilding. He has served as a columnist for Forbes, uh, founder of the Atlantic Bitcoin Embassy, senior distinguished fellow of the Austrian Economic Center in Vienna, and research affiliate for RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub in Melbourne, Australia, author of thousands of articles in the scholarly and popular press, and eight books in five languages. He speaks widely on topics of economics, technology, social philosophy, and culture. Jeffrey, forgive us if we've missed anything out from your extensive and impressive biography. Uh, Welcome to the New Flesh podcast.
0: Uh, Thanks for having me. I I hate introductions. It's just ridiculous because, you know, people judge me based on what I say right now. (laughs) Not not this, that, the other thing. But thank you.
1: Well, look, Jeffrey, you're a research affiliate for RMIT University in Melbourne. Now, given its insanely authoritative COVID policies here in the state of Victoria, are you still affiliated with RMIT, or have they cast you out uh, uh, with the great unwashed? Uh,
0: You know, they haven't thrown me out, and you know, it's it's a kind of a different topic. You know, this whole question, let me turn this up. Whole question of uh, uh, COVID policy and blockchain. There's really different things. Um, But uh, so my relationship uh, there has always been about trying to understand the theoretical foundations for blockchain and ledger ledger style uh, technology as it fits into history and current technological innovations and that sort of thing. Um, public health and, and COVID policy is another matter entirely. So my friends, there, I don't even know what their positions are. I'm, I suspect they're against the lockdowns as any rational person should be, but I don't know that for sure.
2: Well, uh, with with the war in Ukraine uh, dominating the media currently, are we in danger of the COVID nineteen panic being being memory holed, Do you think?
0: Well, you can call it a danger or or a deliberate plot. I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> uh, all these things are connected. And yeah, I was thinking the other day, um, uh, you know, the way that that Western corporations have responded to, to the Russia Ukraine conflict, which is you know far more Uh, complicated than just purely a a, a Manichean sort of paradigmatic, you know, good versus evil uh, situation. There's a long history here and a lot of complications, but for Western corporations to resort to this sort of virtual signaling, you know, sanctions, like, oh, we're not going to sell vodka, we're not going to sell hamburgers to the the people of Russia, we're going to we're going to go all in and and fly the Ukrainian flag and so on. You know, I think I think part of this is an extension of the training that people got during lockdowns. You know, it, it was okay. Here comes a virus. What should we do? Well, let's just shut shut everything down. Let's just be brutal in our response and 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 destroy enterprise uh, and and that will make everything better. But, I would say the response to the Russia-Ukraine war has been very similar. It's, you know, like shut down trade, shut down commerce, close everything down. You know, let's just stand up for what's right. You know, and and then the, then the, the the snake in the garden will go will go away. You know, we'll just drive Putin out of office. We'll, we'll we'll drive SARS-CoV-2 into oblivion. You know, with our strength and our and our will. So it's it's all connected. It's all it's all related. Also, I know that Australia is experiencing an astonishing inflation right now. I was looking at your central bank data on on how the central bank uh, has been trying to cover up f- for the for the economic collapse uh, uh, that was deliberate and imposed in the in, in the spring and you know of twenty twenty and continues to this day with rolling lockdowns and that sort of thing. I and mean, poor Perth, you know, um, is is dealing with this right now. Uh, and and you know, you're going to get. Everybody in Australia is going to get COVID. I'm I'm sorry to report this, but everybody's going to get COVID. That's always been true. And every competent epidemiologist, immunologist, virologist has known that from the very beginning. So this is a, an egregious policy. And now, uh, because of the central bank uh uh policy choices plus massive supply chain breakages and the cutting off of travel and trade and everything else. It's producing a, a a terrifying inflation, you know, all over the world, and I, that's my understanding that, that Australia is also being hit by this, you know, and and uh, it's it's so th- everything's linked. I'm not sure that people understand that, but but it's all connected. I mean, we've seen one trajectory, you know, over 24 months, it's, you know, this, then this, then this, then this, and boom, you know, we've got inflation plus a, a public health crisis plus war.
1: But w- why is there this seeming reluctance to take an accounting of what went down over the last couple of years? At least at least that's the sense we're getting here in Australia.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I, I think it has to do with uh, uh, the fact that, that so many mistakes were made and all the experts were incredibly wrong. And this is unbearably obvious. So under these conditions, you can either apologise and beg forgiveness or just hope it all is forgotten. You know, I, I think that's... Uh, that's what's going on here. You've got a, a kind of a ruling class that is terrified of the anger from the from uh, from from underneath, you know, from the people, which has been growing. You know, initially everybody kind of went along, and this is my sense of Australia. Australia's about a year behind the U.S., you know, in in, in terms of things. But the, the U.S. was similar, right? And the lockdowns came to be. Oh, so we, also, well, we got a bad virus. We better better all just stay separate from each other and shut our businesses and lounge around in our pajamas for a few months but then after a while people began to get suspicious and it's like well wait a minute we've had pandemics in the past we had them in we had one in um uh 2009 and in um with h1n1 we had them in 2002 and 2003 with the SARS-CoV-1 which i australia experienced to some extent uh but never came to the u.s we had one and a, a big threat in 2006 with the avian bird flu, where all the experts said it was going to kill half the population of the world, and it never actually jumped from birds to, to humans. Uh, we, we had one previous to that in, I have to think back, I think a long time went by, but I think the most, before that there was 1968-69, which was uh, awful, and then we had 57-58, we had 42-43, and then we had 29 with the parrot flu everybody's forgotten that one
1: (laughs) i I feel like people are treating all those other pandemics which you talk about in your book uh as sort of like the palm pilot of covid i'm sorry of of pandemics you know what i mean like and and covid is the iphone it's sort of like people don't care what came first
0: (laughs) well it's it's because this is our pandemic you know yes um early on i i've been bemused by the response to this whole thing i mean like to to me when a a new pathogen comes comes along regardless of its origins we can talk about that uh the right answer is to figure out how to get sick people well and um protect the vulnerable and then otherwise allow your immune system to be upgraded through uh exposure in normal life and that's what evolutionary biology would teach us i mean it's, it's not not a time for panic ever um for, for a variety of reasons panic does nothing good and 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 yet we tried this experimental technique of, of lockdowns and then tried to cover up for the failure of that with uh v- vaccines that were uh very poorly vetted you know horribly messaged and then uh and then went further once as people were skeptical like i'm not sure that i want that shot they said oh yeah well here's your mandate now you have to get it um, and then when the mandates uh, failed, uh, n- now you've got just this long, this long litany of egregious failures that have led to uh, all kinds of other crises, from economic to cultural to social, you know, just everything. And and now you've got a ruling class that's like, well, pay pay no attention to those failures. Just now, now a uh, rally around the Ukrainian flag and hate on Putin. You know, so it's all a. It's all a, a distraction, really. You've written a marvelous book that actually serves
2: as a kind of real-time and impassioned reaction piece to the lockdown era. It's called "Liberty or Lockdown." What was it like writing this book? And did it immediately lose you friends?
0: Yeah, I've been losing friends since January twenty twenty because um, uh, you know I've been researching pandemic response for the last fifteen years and sixteen years, really. And so when this pathogen was was threatening us in in um, January of 2020 i knew that there was a lockdown lobby out there that would attempt something like this and they had all the powers their plans were in place they were never voted on but there was an ethos and an environment that was pro-lockdown and i warned against it and i pleaded with the world to stop and people thought it was insane but we would never do anything like that nothing like that would ever happen never have universal quarantine stay home orders and that sort of thing that's preposterous um so i went on podcasts and people were yeah making fun of me well the lockdowns arrived here in the middle, uh, in the first week of March, um, mm-hmm. with the shutting down of various, you know, forcible shutting down of, of, of large conferences, international conferences, things like that. And I denounced it. And I expected that I would get a lot of allies and, like, oh, yeah, we, we you know, in a, in, a, in a free country, we don't do this kind of thing. There was just nothing but silence. And so when March 12th came and Trump announced, a uh, shutdown of, of travel from 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 Europe and the UK. Uh, I, I I was amazed. right? I just couldn't believe that anybody imagined that uh, he or she would have f- such power. So I knew it was going to get worse. And then the very next day, that that uh, travel shutdown was extended to Australia and to New Zealand. And um, and that that shattered people's lives. You know. Um, in Australia, New Zealand, all over Europe and the UK. Uh, That was March 13th. On the same day, HHS came out with, uh, that's the Health and Human Services Agency in the United States, came out with a, a template for lockdown that they issued in private, but it was circulated in the government. Um, Trump still was only thought this would be limited to more or less. He believed it was going to be limited to uh, travel restrictions. Um, but then he met in various huddles over the course of the weekend, and then by Monday he was ready for his big presser, and uh, went on TV with uh, t- uh, with Fauci and, and Burks, and they announced uh, the lockdowns, um, which you know he has no power under the U.S. Constitution to lock down the economy. I mean, the president can't do that. But he has a bully pulpit and, and he panicked the public and, and everything froze. And it, and, it, and it was supposed to be two weeks, which I knew was not true. I knew it was just a, a kind of a propaganda device to get warm people up to lockdowns and also warm up Trump. And he uh, foolishly uh, believed his advisors and went along with this um, when two weeks went by They came to him and said, well, you know, we've made some progress, but not enough. And if you open up now, you're going to reverse all this progress and and you'll be blamed for mass millions of deaths. So he said, "Okay, we'll give it another two weeks and then another two weeks. And so on it went all through August until he got a few uh, extra advisors around him who said, look, you've been going about this all wrong. And he changed his mind. But by then he had lost complete control of the government and the administrative state was running everything. He was just he was nothing but a. uh, cartoon character between, uh, well, really after after March 16th, he was made irrelevant. And then, of course, he lost the election. Um, but I was fighting this stuff from very early on and trying to explain it. And I did feel alone. Uh, it turned out there were a few people who felt like me, and I, I kind of met up with them. But it took a long time. I mean, this is, you know, September of 2020, before I kind of met other people, other intellectuals who were against the lockdowns. And they weren't. Um, uh, of my my libertarian leanings at all. They're just, you know, good public health people. And then, of course, you know, came came the Great Branton Declaration, which was shot down by the federal government. But it's been very destabilizing. Probably, uh, you know this, uh, because the people you thought were with you were not with you. People you thought were your enemies were with you um i i think it's led to a, an enormous uh, upheaval and philosophical and ideological and political alliances i don't think the world will ever be the same actually mm.
2: yeah yeah 100% i've definitely seen seen that uh yeah friends and family yeah that are pro lockdown yeah it's hard to uh yeah it's hard to deal with them
1: i remember walking around the block cuz all we could do in those five lockdowns you know that lasted just so long you know year, it was two two years of like you know of this process and i remember walking around and it was only recently when i read read your book um uh that i said to my wife i re, i said all the stuff that that you were saying and and she it was called, it was one of those things that she was like oh my god we were saying that 2 years ago you know and we, we were just all alone, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, spinning around on this rock, uh, you know you know on our little walk around the block that we were allowed to do at night. Uh, and so it was really it was, a, it was quite moving to read your book again, actually. it was it was helping me cope a little bit.
0: <laughs> well, and it's a it's a it's a passionate book, and I, I kind of appreciate it because it's not a careful book. you know it's it it really is sort of rip roaring uh, this is a disaster. Um, and I said a lot of true things in there that later, everybody said you shouldn't say. And uh, probably later I, be, I became a little reluctant to say for fear of getting uh, canceled by Twitter and so on. Um, but I'm glad that book exists because it it, it was my real-time responses to, to what was happening in the world and my my dark sense of, that we're going to go from full medieval here we're going to reverse 500 years of progress thanks to the idiocy of of politicians and the millenarian hysterics of of their public health advisors you know and i think you have one of those let's see um you're in um uh, 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 sydney right Is your main city yes um one of the i think it's melbourne who has that Dan Andrews guy, right?
1: he's Mickey's, Mickey's in Melbourne, and I was in Melbourne fit for Dan, Andrew, Dan Andrews' rain uh, of terror.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I don't know what Sydney, probably Sydney, has his, his equivalent, but uh, um, uh, Dan Andrews just just you know completely lost his mind. I mean, he 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 spoke every time every press conference as if he was absolutely sure of the science, and it was just deeply deeply embarrassing because yeah. he was motivated by some other ideological agenda of some sort. And, um, but nobody could stand up to him because he had all the power. So I hope Australia figures out a way to fix that problem.
1: Well, he said, so you'll like this, Jeffrey, he, he goes, uh, when someone questioned the curfew, the 9pm curfew, he goes, yeah, well, sorry, sorry, sorry that you can't go out and, you know, buy some milk after, after 9pm. <laughs> so there you go. He says, you don't need to. Yeah. You know?
0: yeah and 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 then uh, when he issued the edict that uh, you can't ever take off your mask uh, uh, and so you can't drink right so he said you know your pop-up what did he call it if you're on the footpath and (laughs) and there's a a pop-up uh Bottle O, i don't I don't remember what it's you know funny Australian words. Uh, he said you know that that has to go com- completely. He's a Puritan, right? He yeah. did really tried to re- reverse uh, modernity and you know under the full conviction that he was he was controlling this the spread of this virus, which which I think we should know by now that 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 uh, is an an impossible thing to do. Uh, I mean more ridiculous even than Dan Andrews was uh, Ardern from from New Zealand, you know. Who's, who's I, I think by now, you know, on the verge of complete disgrace, because her cases are through the roof, and they, they had this hilariously, you know, rationalistic uh, system where they were going to trace, track, and trace every single appearance of the virus, and classify it according to. Uh, you know, who introduced it and who passed it on and that sort of thing. It was really stigmatizing the, the, uh, the I've got an the, idea. The, the...
1: We'll, we'll put stars on people's arms and uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll put them in lines and we'll, yeah. lead, we'll put it all in big ledges. It'll be great. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and it was funny because they had such low infection rates because, and I think actually her lockdowns did like work on quote unquote, uh, temporarily to uh, counterfactuals are very difficult, but uh but but the line is flat, you know, for basically two years until until recently. But she has all these bureaucrats that are assigned to track and trace every um, every appearance of the virus. So there's all these theories like, where, where did where did that virus come from? Oh, must have come, must have come from from a box, you know, that was you know floated in on a barge or something, or you know, some some bad people <laughs> were, were uh, having sex in, in the quarantine facility or something. I don't know what, but. Um, <laughs> But now it's funny because you, you, you can look at New Zealand because these bureaucrats just continue to do exactly what they' were supposed to do all along you know which is like classify every infection based on on its origin so they have about six categories of, of origin you know like direct contact neighborhood spread was it you know some traveler coming through whatever because they're really determined to crush the virus. And, and then of course now it's just like through the roof and it's gonna get much worse. I mean, it's gonna get way worse, but it's already just through the roof. So you've got this two years of flatline and then and then this hockey stick at the end and they're all color coded according to the track and trace system of finding out the origin. And and the, the last little peak that they're going through right now is colored yellow. And you look at the map and at the bottom it says, uh, yellow means under investigation. <laughs> 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 I can't figure it out so I don't know where this virus is you know. Sounds so, like an epic waste of time Jeffrey yeah, right? <laughs> so true. Well it's just It's just so sad for the people in New Zealand You know and, and yeah. Australia too And you know it's funny I can tell you From an American point of view um, You know we've always felt a real deep Kinship with with Australia You know, um, you know A sense of friendship And you know you're our sister country You know um, except better educated um, and nicer, you know. Um, uh, that's the way we've always thought of it. And then to see Australia go absolutely nuts, you know, is, is enormously depressing. And it's also very easy for Americans to otherize Australia. You know, as like, oh, our friends, how come they went so, you know, utterly bonkers? But Americans forget that we too, you know, went utterly bonkers. Just for a shorter uh, duration australia was able to keep up keep up the fantasy for much longer because it's it's an isolated uh, island you know mm. how, how do you think this has affected our reputation
2: as, as australians on 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 the world stage like what do americans largely think of what's happened
0: here uh well, it's, as I say, it's very easy to otherwise other people's responses, but, but most Americans think Australia is just gone nuts and we used to think Australia was a you know a sister country with you know, the prized freedom and to see Australia just locking down completely and these rolling lockdowns and the mask mandates and the vaccine mandates and everything. It's it's chilling and it's broken uh, American um, affections for Australia, like every American I ever knew. Wanted to go to Australia and brag, you know, about oh my time in Sydney, oh my time in Melbourne, oh my time in Perth, oh Brizzy is the best place ever, and that sort of thing. Uh, but after two years of being blocked uh, from Australians coming here or us going there, uh, or uh, you know these these extreme mandates, we fly in, and and one of the things Australia did, I mean, it's just it's amazing. But um, I think for a good part of two years, Americans could get into Australia, uh, but but you had to pay for your own quarantine in a fancy pants hotel for two weeks. So you're not only paying thousands of dollars for a, a plane ticket, but then you're paying you know many, many thousands of dollars for two weeks to sit in a hotel room because you're yeah. diseased. I mean, you, you don't want to go to a country that presumes you're carrying a, a, a deadly disease. They, they, that's basically not what you want to do. Mm-hmm. So it, it crushed uh, tourism and it, and it crushed a. Crushed, uh, Uh, relations and i I felt awful i mean we're gonna it's gonna take a long time to rebuild this this friendship and then the the handful of australian intellectuals who who went against the the narrative you know have been have been uh canceled within australian culture within the media and and my good friend gigi foster who I, i think might be in in Sydney University of South Wales, yeah, uh, is a ferocious uh, American economist. You know, we're teaching at the University of South Wales, and she wrote a book for us called uh, um, "The Great COVID Panic," which is just a great, a wonderful treatise on the whole subject. But, uh, but she's been demonized. I mean, she doesn't care, but she's been called every name. I mean, her inbox is filled with. Uh, you know, she's a witch. You know, she's yeah. It's just well, the awful. worst
1: of it was on 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 one of our program dreadful programs we have here called Q&A it's like question time basically and she was on that and it's, you can see it on youtube basically you can see the moment that the the host uh, of the program uh turns up the heat and uses that emotive language and a Q and and says why you know essentially why why do you want those people to die why is it okay for those people to die and and it was it was a it was a massive pile on and it was a, it was a, dre- a, 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 a despicable uh, piece of film
0: That was in the spring of 2020. I remember watching it. and
1: uh, What were you thinking when you saw that?
0: uh, Well, I was sad for her, but also really proud of her because, I mean, she's just not the kind of person to back down. I mean, she's a genuine scientist and a truth teller. and She's not going to let people intimidate her into silence. So she's just ferocious. And also she didn't guard her words at all. I mean, she just really went all in. And I admire that so much. I think she's an amazing person, but I, I felt sad for Australia. Australia, from the, for, for this whole pandemic, has been kind of a more extreme version of the US. And we've had our own versions of that, but they haven't dominated, I wouldn't say. There's always been dissonance. Um, I am among them, but you know, many people gradually join me over time. But in Australia, there's just, it's, 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 it's been uh, a lot slower coming. Um, I have no doubt that over time, uh, should be celebrated as a as a great hero of, of the nation. My Australian friends tell me that one of the reasons she was able to get away with it is kind of funny. It's hard for Americans to understand this, but apparently there's a uh, within Australian media culture there's there's a weird sort of respect given to all Americans There's a presumption that that Americans you know have it all have it all going. You now well no and because so whenever
1: they- you speak it sounds like you're in a movie to us so we we <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we sit true. up and we go oh it's like the west wing yeah we, you know like or something you know
0: <laughs> and we think we think uh australia all Australians sound like crocodile dundee so it's like- <laughs> 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 uh,
2: what jeffrey yeah. I'm, I'm quite confused as to as to where the idea of a lockdown actually came from and now you you've studied you know pre pre-pandemic mm-hmm. plans and and mm-hmm. for some reason, we, we, we threw those out like instantly almost. like we, we, did this come from China? Did it did it come from the mind of a child? Like like what was the plan before we decided to lock
0: everyone up? Uh, I am going to I'm sorry to you should never like get out your cell phone and uh, uh, Google, but I can never remember this guy's name. Uh, so I'm going to uh, to look it up. Uh, because i can never remember it but it, it, it all this all began under the george bush administration aha here we go and i'm going to read you his name there's a guy a bureaucrat there aha i've got his name here rajiv venkaya dr rajiv venkaya and uh dr venkaya was working for the bush administration in the uh, Biosecurity uh, working group or something like that which is a bogus job i mean it's just like hanging around at the white house feeling important um and no experience in uh, knowledge of, of immunology no experience in public health whatsoever i forget even what his training was um uh, foreign policy or something like that uh, but george bush was in an apocalyptic mood because he had started the war in iraq he was convinced that there's going to be blowback from that, you know, that with scary terrorists unleashing, um, bio warfare against us. And, and he wanted a plan. So he went to this guy. He said, do we have an office that looks into this? And I said, yeah, you've got an office right here. It's a political appointee and Rajiv was the head of it. And, uh, and Bush walked in and said, Rajiv, I want you to come up with a plan for how we're going to deal with pandemics. He's like, well, I don't know anything about the subject, but I'll do my best. So he contacted a, uh, uh, he got in contact with a guy who was working at a, a laboratory in New Mexico, um, a government grant, and who was a computer programmer. Um, and they said, you know, how do you think we should deal with pandemics? And he, he didn't really know. But his daughter at that time was in middle school, and she was doing a science program, a science meeting. And she had come up with a plan for avoiding cooties, which is, I'm not sure what you call them in Australia, but these are like...
1: Yeah, it's scale um, James. Girl gems.
0: Girl like, gems? No, girl gems.
1: Like, like cooties. They like, oh, go cooties. Like, like it's like, like cooties, you know,
0: I mean, yeah. they call it uh, something else in the UK. I forget. Much, I remember, but every, every nation has its own version of this sort of fictional virus that girls have or boys have. And so you have to avoid people. So she came up with a model of avoiding people. And she said the worst problem with cooties it's not her language, but you know, with, with uh, infections is a school bus because you have to sit by next to boys and they give you these diseases. So she said, you know, what we need is a model of human separation. And her father, it was all fathers are to their 12, 13 year old uh, precocious uh, daughters, you know, was, you know, incredibly deferential. Oh, sweetheart, you've really come up with something brilliant here. And so he got to work modeling her uh, disease avoidance um, scenarios and presented it to Rajiv, and they and they got another recruit who's Carter Meacher, who is a a, 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 <laughs> a consultant to the Veterans Administration, which is the the government hospital system for for the military, and he used to be an emergency room physician in Chicago. And so something went wrong in his career because you don't go from private practice as an emergency room physician to a VA consultant, you know, that quickly. Um, but the three of them said, "Well, you know, the president really wants some big plan, so let's let's give it to him." And They thought they had invented uh, pandemic planning, and they bragged about it, like we're inventing pandemic planning. And at some point, Carter Mitchell said, "But you know, isn't it strange that there's all these experts? There's millions of experts on public health and." Immunology and epidemiology all over the world. How come nobody else came up with that? And these are the days, 2005, 2006, where all disruptors were considered to be godlike figures. And and the way you disrupt a profession is by not knowing anything about it. You know, so the the more ignorant you are, the more innovative you are. This is the sort of ethos <laughs> of technology, you know, and so on. Don't tell me I don't tell me what I can't do. You know, I'm I'm actually. Uh, the less I know, the more I can achieve, you know, this is sort of the Steve Jobs effect, you know, and uh, I want to be able to operate my computer by rubbing a, a disc on my leg, you know, just don't tell me I can't do that. So these guys all came up with pandemic planning and they presented it to Bush uh, and uh, and he was impressed because they had PowerPoint presentations and moving 3D charts and that sort of thing. And he said, this is rather amazing. So he told the CDC to, to adopt this plan. And at the time, I mean, traditional public health epidemiology was just mortified. This is, this is a terrible idea. In fact, you know, the t- world's top living epidemiologist named Donald Henderson, uh, uh, who worked for the Wealth, World Health Organization, who traveled the world, eradicated smallpox, is an amazing guy, wrote a paper, which you can still download today saying, you know, every one of these ideas are terrible. You know, quarantines never work. Masks are ridiculous. Stay-at-home orders are going to demoralize people. People are going to be, like, you know, hanging themselves from their shower heads. (laughs) You know, you can't can't shut down business, you know, that'll bankrupt everybody. Uh, And none of this stuff is going to control the pathogen. This is very bad. What you need is normal social and market functioning during a, a pandemic and, and let the go- doctors go to work trying to figure out the best way to mitigate it. And that's that's what you do. You don't do this weird thing. Um, and that paper came out in 2006, but got no attention. In fact, it was sort of attacked. But but generally, the epidemiological profession in Australia and the UK and US and most of Europe was traditional. Uh, but then the avian bird flu came along. And then the media got involved, like oh, the avian bird flu. Oh, it's going to kill everybody. And Fauci, Anthony Fauci, went on, you know, ABC News or whatever, CBS News, and said, well, it's very dangerous because uh, you know it's, it's it's very difficult for the avian bird flu to hop from birds to humans. But where it has happened, we're seeing a fifty percent death rate. Well, you know, next thing you know, the news media is saying half the human race is going to die from this thing. So it was a big deal. Uh, that everybody kind of ignored. I don't you know it's nobody really took it seriously but in the centers of government it became a big deal and this whole thing got the attention of attention of Bill Gates. And uh, Bill Gates at the time was dealing with a real problem that the great operating system he had come up with for his computer was being attacked constantly by viruses. You know, you'd open up your email and there'd be malware. And, you know, and so his view was, wow, this is just exactly like my world, you know, my operating system is being destroyed by viruses. Similarly, the, the, uh, the biological operating system is being destroyed by viruses. So what, what, the way I've, I'm figuring this out is by having ever more, ever better uh, virus uh, scanners. Uh, to get rid of these horrible things. So, so we, need, we need the same thing for biology. So he took his billions and started throwing it around journals and the epidemiological departments, and the World Health Organization, wherever, with a complete lockdown agenda.
1: He was running around with his mistress as well at the same time.
0: Wasn't oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and stopping, stopping viruses, both computer and biological. And, and gradually over, over 15 years, this idea just began to be dominant. Uh, um, uh, it, it wasn't deployed in 2006 or 2009 um, or 2012, uh, but it just needed to wait for the right moment. And that right moment was 2020 when uh, we, we got the Wuhan virus, which was kind of scary from, from China. And then they had a president who really hated uh, Chinese imports, you know, and believed in his incredible capacity to st- stop a virus. And also, uh, there were a lot of people who wanted to get rid of him. He had been impeached twice already. And, and the anti-Trump forces were looking for any excuse. And so an implausible plan was hatched at some point. Uh, let's convince Trump to destroy uh, the American economy and then other nations will copy and the world will go into crisis and he'll be kicked out of office.
1: And it worked. Mission accomplished. Hmm. So... I want to talk about the great Barrington declaration shortly, but just before we do that, can we knock off quickly just, just since you wrote your book uh, what, what are in, in terms of um, the biggest myths of, of the COVID era? So like in your, in our pursuit of truth, let's, I want to be able to discount anything we can. So for example, like cloth masks, we know they don't work. So what would you say are a list of things that uh, you know we can say uh, that were total backflips, lies or bullshit?
0: Well, certainly the, the masking issue, but also I think the top one was that children were somehow uh, vectors of, of of disease and spread. It turns out not to be true. they're almost almost, to the point of being not vulnerable to severe outcomes at all. The CDC just downgraded its its list of uh, childhood deaths from COVID by 25%. Um, I'm not aware of any case of, of a child Having severe outcomes from SARS-CoV-2 that wasn't didn't have you know terrible uh, pre-existing comorbidities and was already in danger. So the shutdown of the schools was was based on essentially nothing, and that grew out in, entirely from the models, and that traces exactly to Laura Glass's uh, Cooties model. I mean. That, well, and Carter Meach was the guy who lobbied for the schools to close. I mean, it, was a, it was just a complete disaster in the U.S. There are many schools that stayed closed for the better part of two years. It's just unbelievable. So that was that was a huge myth. Um, the idea of uh, asymptomatic, a, 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 uh, asymptomatic spread was based on the presumption of a long period of latency. So, I'm going to sum up for your viewers. Uh, it goes like this. I mean, like every virus works the same way. Uh, the more Prevalent a virus is the less deadly it is. The more deadly a virus is, the less prevalent it is. And now the reason for that is that uh, a virus needs a living host. So, for example, you have something like uh, Ebola, right? Which is very deadly. It's going to kill the people who get it. Half the people get it, or a third, and then you're going to get ever fewer, ever less transmission because the um, the virus itself you know, dies before it can spread. So, so, the more widespread it is, the less deadly it is. And those are, that's just a normal kind of understanding of the way viruses work. So, something that's extremely wide, widespread can be mostly mild, and that's true for SARS CoV 2. Um, now, the condition here that, that, that uh, alters that just slightly is, is the conditions of latency, which is how long you carry the virus in your system um, before you start feeling symptoms. So, if you could imagine, And it doesn't really uh, exist—a virus that you carry around for six months but don't know you have. You can spread it to a lot of people, right? So suddenly, the trade-off between severity and prevalence gets uh, confounded by the existence of the condition of latency. So, if you're going to, in a lab, come up with the perfect virus uh, to to kill as many as people as possible, you have to build in a long latency. so there was a presumption very early on that SARS-CoV-2 had a very long latency period. And you would start hearing things like, well, you can carry the virus for for two weeks to a to month, uh, during which time you're spreading it to everybody. And that sent the world into absolute panic. Now, this was never empirically verified. It turns out the latency of SARS-CoV-2 is probably closer to two or three days as, as it is with every coronavirus, you know, uh, common cold, for example, you know, which can, can be a coronavirus or rhinovirus, one of the two, but it's got a very shortened latency period. And that's true with sars cov So we didn't have any empirical evidence of a long period of latency, but, but it was we, the, lockdowns, the lockdowns were uh, in part based on that. So that was, a, that was an, an immense error. And then you had, I mean, I'm bumping forward in time, but then the vaccines came out and the public health messaging on that was crazy. I mean, they're, 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 everybody said that oh, the vaccine is going to fix everything. It's going to stop infection, stop spread, and it's going to last forever. I mean, that—that that was, you know, like like measles. Um, well, the vaccine. If you look at the emergency use authorizations least in the U.S., I don't know what happened in Australia. Um, I suppose you use Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca. I'm not sure, um, and J and J, but. AstraZeneca was banned in the U.S. Uh, Pfizer got the ear of the politicians, uh, Moderna less so, and J and J was always the sort of the, the the stepsister. And and at some point, J and J was withdrawn because it had it produced blood clots or whatever. But the presumption of the vaccine, they were they were wildly oversold. I mean they, they they were never they were never tested for whether or not they stopped spread or infection, and they were never tested thoroughly for. Uh, the waning effect. And then of course once they're deployed, it turns out they have a limited use in stopping severe outcomes for two, three, four months. But otherwise they do nothing to stop uh, actual infection and actual spread, which is to say they don't contribute to public health at all, right? So the idea of a, of a vaccine is that it sterilizes the virus and you don't become a vector for the, for the spread. That was the idea of vaccines always. So that's why you would have mandates for smallpox or measles or something like that. Well, if if they're not going to stop the spread and they're not going to stop infection, uh, they don't contribute to the achievement of herd immunity, which is what we're going for in any kind of pathogenic uh, pandemic. So they contributed nothing to the achievement of herd immunity. So it was always inevitable the natural infection was going to end the pandemic. But people didn't know that. They didn't understand that. And this is all the fault of, of politicians. And even now, I just saw a survey just this morning asking people about, about uh, oh, by an Australian professor, actually. Uh, there was a, a survey in Australia about the vaccines, and only 4% of, of Australians understood the uh, opportunities and limits of this vaccine because it had been messaged so poorly. I mean, that's a scandal. An absolute scandal. I don't know. That's just the start another one. I'm just keep going through the list here. You said short, uh, so I'll stop with this one. The travel restrictions. I mean, as far, as far as we know, this virus was already present in the U.S. in the fall of 2019, and so these travel restrictions that were were passed in the spring of 2020 did achieved absolutely nothing, and it came here anyway, just like it's going to Australia anyway. So none of this stuff worked.
1: Well. I think that's probably a good point to, pi- to pivot onto the Great Barrington Declaration. So uh, we didn't actually uh, hear much about it here uh, because the media didn't report on it, uh, which isn't unusual because the, it hasn't been mentioned in any New York Times headlines, only in the body of, of articles where they've added um, you know, sort of hit piece language <laughs> in, the, in the front of it. Uh, but for the benefit of our Australian listeners, can you explain the Great Barring- Barrington Declaration and your involvement in the project?
0: Sure. So I, I had uh, contacted a Harvard professor who was objecting to all these lockdowns. I said, wow, you must be really lonely, full professor of medicine and biostatistics uh, epidemiologist at Harvard, and you're against these lockdowns. I said, Why don't we hang out for a little bit? Well, we hit it off. And he, and he came up with the idea. Of holding a little uh, conference at which we invite journalists. Because he said, you know, the real problem is these journalists are just you know, grossly ignorant of basic principles of public health. Why don't we invite them and then we'll give them a little seminar? I thought, oh, well, that's a great plan. I'd <laughs> naive. <laughs> and he was naive too. We, we just thought these journalists were ignorant. We didn't realize they were, uh, you know, carrying water for higher powers, you know. And so. We put together a small conference. I invited lots of journalists, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, many people, but I got tired of the rejections after a while. They were like, oh no, I'm not gonna come to that. I'm not gonna come to that. So we ended up just having three. We had somebody from the BMJ, uh, somebody from Real Clear uh, Markets, and then another guy who's a roving journalist for the Atlantic named David Zweig. And they came and we brought in uh, Sunetra Gupta from Oxford probably the most famous epidemiologist and the, certainly the most revered in the world, uh, along with Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford. And it was a tiny, tiny little meeting. and But they all hit it off really well. And we realized that the world was in crisis. There was no letdown for lockdowns. And so somebody had to say something. So over the course of a day or two, they fashioned a, a basic statement, restating what we know about Cell biology and 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 public health, it was not anything controversial. Herd immunity will be achieved uh, once immune systems are are upgraded, and that comes through uh, exposure, hopefully from the non-vulnerable populations, and during which time we should protect uh, vulnerable populations much as much as possible. We know precisely who those are based on data from. From January all the way up to the present, we know precisely who the vulnerable populations are, and they need to be—they need to be—they need to protect themselves, and that's what public health should be about. Let's go on with life as normal. Let's get to the end of this sooner rather than later. That was all it said, but immediately um, it was like this, and, and we we built a website uh, really quickly and um, encouraged people to sign it. Experts around the world, and now it's up to almost a million signatures. Um, but the, those doctors were very naive. They said, wow, why don't we get everybody in the world to sign it? And then the politicians will change their minds. And I said, well, this is Jay. I said, Jay, how many do you think are going to sign it? he said, well, maybe a million people. I don't think I said it at the time, but I'm, you know, I have a long career in technology and public, uh, marketing and public relations and editorial stuff. And I thought, if a million people sign these docu- this document, we've got a lot of problems. <laughs> that, will, that will that will generate a frenzy like we've never seen before. So you think you want that? But maybe you don't. So we deployed it, and sure enough, you know, yeah. It, it really, and we know now from from uh, FOIA request emails that um, that Collins at, at NIH N- NIH and uh, fauci uh, at NIH um, along with a handful of others, really really just plotted the, that smear campaign you know
1: personal it got personal yeah it, as it, well
0: it, it did it did and it still remains that way. I mean it's just and we're still getting, information about this stuff all the time i mean uh there's the yale epidemiologist who um is very closely in contact with fauci and collins these guys who just this last december uh wrote them an email you know complaining about the great Branson declaration and fauci wrote back and said these people remind remind him of the, the people who denied aids you know so so it's it's going on it's been going on for for a year and a half now, that sort of conversation.
1: The, the Wikipedia entry is is quite something. I, I, mm. I, it, this thing is performance art. Like, it's filled with pot shots. It's got pseudoscience uh, mentioned. There's a huge epistle from Fauci. Uh, he calls it dangerous and right. nonsense. Um, they've tried to tar and feather the whole thing. They've used Trump climate denialism the Koch brothers the whole kitchen sink right and like there as you said there are people who clearly wanted this thing uh, uh and everyone involved deep six we know who some of them were but but why did it become political so quickly and what was driving this negativity
0: well, I think what happened was that the uh, ep- epidemiological profession that was very closely tied to power had engaged in these extreme actions that really fundamentally violated human rights and disrupted society like has never been done in many lifetimes. In fact, in all of human history, we've never seen anything like a global lockdown like this. It was it was egregious. And so, so their actions were so extreme, they became fanatical in trying to stop and silence uh, dissent about it because... Um, you know, what they did did not work. That's a huge problem. And so there's the psychological element. you are also, we're I mean, asking questions I can't really answer, but do I have my suspicions? Yeah. Um, and I think it has something to do with the belief that uh, this ultimately traces to a, a lab leak in Wuhan and, uh, and they're trying to cover up for their involvement. And I can't prove that. I have a lot of evidence of it. But I think in the end, we're going to find out.
2: Well, I, I don't really understand some of the criticisms. Like, why is focused protection and shielding vulnerable populations, why is that seen as impractical, but locking down cities of millions of people is seen as perfectly reasonable? That seems topsy-turvy to me.
0: Well, this is one of the reasons that they very early on you know, had to suppress the information concerning... Uh, the huge disparate impact of the virus you know I mean even just like last week Jen Psaki who's the uh, spokesman for for Biden said we don't know if uh, SARS-CoV-2 has a uh, more or less severe impact on the young versus the old we don't know after two years we don't know the only thing we for sure know so they had to present this as a universal threat to everybody like, if you get COVID, you are going to die. This has been the messaging from the very beginning. The Great Branton Declaration just drew attention to the, the incredibly undeniably obvious fact that there's a at least a 1,000-fold difference in uh, the risk profile of the young versus the old. And, you know, that should impact uh, the public health response. That was their theory, but they couldn't ever admit that because, as you say, the uh, public health response was... was, was uh, a, a macro, it was a, the, all a society kind of response. So everybody should avoid the disease. And it was crazy. I, I remember um, it was April or May when Rajiv called my phone. Rajiv, you know, the, the guy who now works for this, I think he's going on this, his third vaccine company, called my phone. I didn't really know who he was. He introduced himself as former head of virus control at... Uh, at the Gates Foundation, I was like, wow, that's interesting. Um, uh, but um, I kept asking him the same question over and over. It's like, okay, we lot. So he wanted me to stop condemning the lockdowns. He's like, you need to stop this.
1: This actually happens. These people call this, these heavies actually call you up and say, like, oh, just lay off, would you? Come on, just, just get on board with lockdown. It's good. You like your apartment,
0: Jeffrey. Yeah, that that actually happened to me so wow. you know i invited a, a a co-worker into my office i said i think you need to hear this conversation because i don't want to mischaracterize it i need at least another witness mm-hmm. uh, but i talked to him for the better part of maybe 30 minutes 45 minutes something like that and the whole time he's like you need to stop condemning the lockdowns. since these lockdowns are great um i said i, I look i I've seen a lot of harms, but, but uh, from these lockdowns, all my friends are demoralized. People, you know, can't get haircuts, can't get dentistry. Look like, what the hell! And he said, "No, but, well, um, but you don't understand. It's a, t- it's a technique for viruses suppression." And so I kept asking him. I said, "Well, okay, let's just say that there's no collateral damage whatsoever uh, at all, and everybody's fine with being locked down and forcing the working class to deliver." you know the groceries to your front door and you know all this kind of stuff they say all this stuff's fine what happens to the virus now my understanding is that every pathogen that's ever existed still exists there's only one that's been eradicated and that's smallpox um but apart from that eradication is very difficult that took several hundred years um what happens to SARS-CoV-2 where does it go does it just get bored and retire <laughs> <You know? laughs> retire on a, on a beach in florida i mean what, what the hell you know what what do you think is going to happen to this thing and he said oh no it's all just in the math you know if you drive the r below one then one person doesn't transmit it to another person and one person transmitted to 0.8 persons and then 0.6 and then 0.4 and then it just falls to zero and i was stunned by that and later thought about it because i didn't really think about this at the time, but you know, what he's doing is mixing up a numeric description of an effect and thinking that it's a cause, right? So like, if it's raining outside and you see a bunch of people walking with umbrellas and then you see that they've all put away their umbrellas and also you notice that the rain is stopping, you think, well, that's the way to stop the rain, put away your umbrellas. I mean, it's a very similar kind of like logical error, right? So, I mean, it's just dumb. It's just dumb. But, and then I was challenging them on that. And somebody goes, Look, look, we're just, what we're going to get is a vaccine. And then I was shocked because this was the spring of 2020 when I knew that there had been never a successful vaccine against the coronavirus. I knew that there would be leaky, that the variants were too, were, were coming. You know, I mean, every virus comes with a kind of a penchant for changing clothes. I mean, some, just are happy to wear the same costume all the time, like uh, measles or uh, smallpox. They're very stable viruses from which for, for, from which you can vaccinate. But coronaviruses have uh, huge wardrobes, and they're impatient. They change clothes all the time, you know. And uh, so I knew that you can't you, you come up with a vaccine. This is why we've never had a vaccine against malaria, for example, which is a parasite. But, but it just changes all. It changes too rapidly. As soon as you develop a vaccine for one variant, there's another variant and so on. So I knew. I really had grave doubts that it ever happened. Uh, but in any case, even if it did, I've, you know, I mean, our history has told us that these thing, things take five years. And so I've got a guy on the phone telling me that we could be locked down for as much as, you know, uh, five years. And he was okay with that. And then the presumption was that the vaccine itself would eradicate the virus. So this is, this, this, this man talking about the phone was crazy. It's crazy person.
1: There were obviously a lot of detractors. Um, Well, were there, but there was a, a rival memorandum put out this John Snow memorandum. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, they have a slightly different perspective. They countered the G- uh, the GBD in some ways, agreed with with uh, the lockdown uh, with some of the your assessment of the lockdown measures. Uh, but the but what I was thinking about this. Didn't the authors of that memo, and people can read both of them, of the John Snow one, didn't they accidentally do what the what the Great Barrington Declaration was trying to do in part, which was to kickstart a reasoned debate about a course of action at a time when governments were making unilateral moves and like all dissent was being silenced
0: uh, maybe so um I don't I mean I read the Johnstone memo when it came out and it looked to me like a regurgitation of a bunch of media's talking points I was extremely unimpressed by it and I thought it was just dumb so I, I've not reread it um and I noticed it's kind of faded from memory you know it's, it's not around anymore
1: no, well, it's certainly, it certainly hasn't uh, got the stickability of, of the Great Barrington Declaration, which I think is the proof in the pudding there. But, uh, but I was just taken aback by, their, by the criticism that they, that, that they offered. I, 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 like, part of what they were saying was they were essentially saying, oh, we need a united front. Even if it's wrong, mm-hmm. we've just got mm-hmm. to be saying it together. Mm-hmm. That's the mm-hmm. point.
0: Well, it's also strange because Jon Snow himself was a very interesting guy, right? He's this uh, British epidemiologist who, <laughs> uh, during cholera outbreaks in the 1880s, uh, everybody in, in London was pursuing a kind of a medieval uh, theory that, you know, the um cholera is just everywhere it's in the air you breathe and if you and if you go outside and and to the wrong block you know the, the air is filled with cholera there's a miasma theory of disease and john snow very helpfully pointed out well as far as i can tell that all you know the cholera is coming from this one uh dirty dirty uh, spring over here i mean like all the outbreaks are are mostly centered on the people who are using this particular water source of water supply so there might be some. Might be the cholera might be in the water, you know. So the, let's investigate that. Stop demonizing people and panicking people, and use science. Well, that's you know. So that's exactly what the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration were doing with uh, the SARS-CoV-2. Let's figure out what this pathogen is like, how's transmitted, who's vulnerable to it, and and disrupt society as little as possible in the course of its um, eradic not eradication, but through its the achievement of endemicity, and, th- and that comes only through herd immunity, which is a concept that was developed in the 1920s, You know, based on an, an empirical observation of of how it is that pandemics become endemic. You know, How does a virus become a manageable annoyance rather than a, a, a deadly disruptor of society? And th- that's what they were proposing to do. Um, I think that there was a funny way in which the Great Barrington Declaration was wildly misunderstood. Uh, and it wasn't long i mean it's 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 like what a thousand words or something but people wouldn't read it they thought it was a let it rip mm. approach oh just let it rip that's what Colin said you know what just is this oh. expression let
1: it rip this 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 gets, this gets said <laughs> over and over again I don't know where this has come from and it really it's code for what you're saying is like you know just kill everyone or something let's kill them all
0: you yeah it should just get get, get yeah, kill them all. Let God sort them out. Right? It was just you know let everybody get the virus, which is not what they're saying. I mean, these are public health experts, and part of the ethos of public health is not that you know we'll ever in, approach things perfectly, but but insofar as is possible, let's use human intelligence to uh, minimize the damage of pathogenic exposure. Just minimize it. Achieve the best possible results at the at the least possible cost. I mean, that's that's. The, the goal in a sense of, of public health. So, um, focus protection was, was really about, again, imperfect, was about recognizing who's vulnerable and encouraging them to isolate, or at least, uh, stay well, stay safe, uh, until the, until, um, in your particular community, there's been the achievement of herd immunity. And that's the approach we've always used for, for annual flus or anything else. Uh, it was bizarre to me because like, I heard it. The, the, focus protection is 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 not so much normative as it is descriptive of what had always happened in flu pandemics um and if you have parents that are above a certain age and people above a certain age say 60 70 let's say 70 not 60. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay <laughs>
0: uh, you get these magazines and i was like no Living well into old age, you know, and they always tell you when the flu season's coming, and they advise you to not go to the Justin Bieber concert. So, you know, it's pretty good advice, you know. And and the idea is that the pathogen circulates, and and young people are not vulnerable, you know, to it. Get it, and then it it achieves endemicity uh, and herd immunity, and herd immunity protects you. So the idea is not the idea of herd immunity is that not everyone needs to get sick. Some people can avoid the pathogen while you know, um, everybody else's immune systems are are basically upgraded, and then and then some people don't have to upgrade their immune systems through exposure, and can go around uh, living a normal life. That's 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 herd immunity. It was a, a theory that was discovered basically in the 1920s. So it's a, a fairly modern insight, but it's very helpful for understanding how you uh, uh, preserve as many lives as possible in the event of a pandemic. So. And this is stuff you learn in school as an epidemiologist. You know, it's it's not it's not outlandish. It was what everybody believed until the day before yesterday. In fact, one of the strangest things about some of the authors, many of the authors of the John Snow Memorandum, is that those same people in February, including Greg Gonzalez of Yale, uh, signed a letter, um, I was going to say it came out in like middle of February of 2020, um, signed by eight epidemiologists and immunologists and, and other medical professionals pleading with the trump administration to not lock down don't close travel don't shut businesses don't close schools and 800 people signed this letter and that was conventional wisdom the problem is they all changed their minds within two weeks yeah sounds like a grand conspiracy of some sort there well you know why they changed um you know, I think we're going to be we're going to be doing investigations for a long time about this. I mean, I have my uh, my suspicions. I mean, Fauci changed, right? I mean, he he changed from opposing lockdowns in early February to suddenly late February being all for them. Uh, he changed from saying that this was going to be a severe uh, flu year to saying we have to lock down the entire world. Yeah. And that flip happened over the course of you know, several weeks in, in February after they discovered the possibility of that all this came from the wuhan lab that they had funded so there you go
2: yeah well we we interviewed the economist gigi foster which you you mentioned earlier in the uh, podcast Uh, we interviewed her on this show three weeks ago and and she stated that she'd like to see those responsible for the most damaging COVID era policies held accountable and and perhaps even serve jail time and you state in a in a recent u.s poll uh, in an article for for the brownstone institute uh, that found that between uh, one half and two thirds of the public believe that the pandemic response was an enormous flop and that their own liberties are far less secure now than they were before mm-hmm. uh, do you think that public opinion on the COVID response is beginning to turn in the u.s and and, and do you think this will result in in any investigation into public officials, health bureaucrats, politicians. Basically, I, I desperately want a Nuremberg style trial here. Mm-hmm. Will it happen?
0: Uh, I think there's going to be. So, one of the reasons for the uh, focus on the Ukraine Russia situation and the, and the political purges that are going on right now is precisely this dramatic shift in public opinion. They know that people are, are, are on to them. So they're trying to distract us. But if there's a big change in political leadership in the U.S., I feel certain that there are certain people in the Senate that are going to get to the bottom of this. Right now, they can't really investigate it because they're in the minority and they don't have so-called subpoena power. So all their hearings are just people showing up voluntarily. But if they get in the majority, suddenly they get the power to drag people before investigative committees and there i think we're going to find out a lot of a lot of things a lot of things we're going to find out about the role of the eco health alliance uh, precisely who got money what the relationship is between the eco health and the gates foundation uh, what was the role of gain of function research at the wuhan lab which the world Health organization long condemned uh, the world community in general long condemned this kind of research which Nonetheless, USAID. There was a certain faction at USAID that was all for gain-of-function research, which is very dangerous. So we're going to find out how it is that Wuhan was doing gain-of-function, whether it was who gave the money, the role of uh, these various epidemiologists in getting grants uh, from from the funders of this kind of research, and all this stuff is going to be known. We're going to the, the the redactions that we currently have from all the correspondence are going to be unredacted. Uh, we're going to we're going to know a lot of things. Um, I don't believe, though, that there will ever be apologies. Um, I don't believe it. And I don't believe that there will ever be justice. It's just not the way the world's constructed. Uh, So I think the best we can hope for is just a kind of reforms to to make this never happen again. I mean, um, you don't want to live in a world in which the Dan Andrews, by the way, what's his role? He's like this prime minister guy. He's the
1: premier of the state of prime Victoria. Premier, right,
0: yeah. but he was always deferring to his public health experts, right? So if people asked him, "Wait, how can you say that?" he said, "Wow, that's what my public health people tell me to say." Yes. Right. So we need to get rid of these uh, these people, uh, 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 these public health experts, and and not let them exercise this kind of control, this kind of influence. We need courts that are empowered to, um, if uh, if some big shot locks down schools or businesses or blocks travel we need courts to say no you can't do that that's contrary to uh, the you know the uh the, the u.s constitution that's contrary to the, the australian uh, bill of rights or whatever whatever protects your rights in australia but in the end i don't i think what you need is a public public opinion to be um to be opposed to this you know it's 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 for for, for for, for public opinion to shift dramatically against lockdown ideology and to have a better understanding of, of, of viruses and, and how, they, how they work and how you deal with them. Uh, we, need, uh, we need mass public education about this, this problem. I mean, early on in the pandemic, I think I wrote this in my book, it was, it, it was weird for me because I, I just felt like, like a whole generation or two or three had failed to pay any attention to ninth grade biology class. You know, <laughs> it's like knowledge just was sort of was absent from the culture. Well, and it's like that movie, dramatic.
1: Idiocracy, you know, where in the future, it's this movie where in the future, everyone becomes, you know, really stupid. and that's how far Yeah, I mean.
0: and then once the media <laughs> signed up for it, it became impossible because and then that's the only thing you could get in the press. I think, yeah, I think Australia had a few... um uh Sky News or something there, and there, there's a I think another paper called the Australian who had one writer named uh, Crichton or something like that, who uh, Adam Crichton, who, yeah, Adam yeah. Crichton, who was writing good stuff, and I think he was published, you know, but it was probably a minority opinion, right? Yeah.
1: Well, the, look, the COVID, the, we're coming to our, our, our downward descent here, but I have to ask the COVID era, the lockdowns, the restrictions, the censorship, the mostly peaceful riots, you know all seriously tested uh, liberal democracies. And there are those that would be happy uh, about that and, you know, probably drove some of the actions we saw, but, you know, there are others that listen to this podcast, in fact, who have the feeling that something isn't right, but can't put it into words. Can you tell us why liberalism is worth saving from the ashes of 2020?
0: Well, liberalism grants you dignity and grants you rights and lets you live in a world uh, stability where you can fashion your own vision and live your own vision according to you know with 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 an asp- life aspirations to to be a good person to 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 do whatever it is you want to do whether it's start a business start a family to make a life for yourself uh, and, and not live under despotism, and the only alternative to, to liberalism is, is, is this kind of this kind of chaos you know and this war against the population, uh, declining living standards and a de- decline of dignity in general and I, I think something must have been present before 2020 where we had lost affection for the idea of being free. Um, I had a haunting conversation with one young person um, back in maybe it' was May or June or something like that of 2020 and I asked her I said what why is it that and she's like let's say she's 25 or 26 I said why is it that your whole generation seemed to have gone so nuts of this thing you all dressing like Taliban wives and and uh, mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, ridiculous and hopping around and condemning other people who are trying to live normal lives like What's driving this? And she said, well, you know, I think what's important to understand here is that this pandemic's the only thing that's ever really happened in our yeah. lives. It's like, only thing that's ever happened. It's a weird way to put it. Um, and I think what that means is that people had lost a sense of meaning um, within a framework of freedom. And when that happens, they long for something else, some big drama, some Hegelian conflict, some upheaval, something to give them a mission and a purpose in life. And that's what that's what COVID did for many people. It just gave them a clarity of purpose that they previously hadn't had. And so, I mean, ultimately, to me, the final way uh, to avoid this kind of thing in the in the future is for people to figure out some other way to find meaning in their lives, whether it's religion or enterprise or health or love, or I don't know what, it's different for every person. But we have to figure out how to live meaningful lives so we don't uh, fall into this pa- to repeated pattern of turning freedom into, into tyranny again and again and again uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the search for something that, that uh, for drama. There's, we need to f- fall in love with the drama of freedom itself again. Or maybe for the first time. That's the only thing that's going to protect us in the future. And maybe that comes through reading Viktor Frankl. Maybe it's a spiritual writer. Maybe it's Jordan Peterson. I don't know. But something has to happen to to give people purpose uh, beyond just following some dictator like Dan Andrews.
2: You, you've you said this whole affair has been pivotal in your life and that everything up till now has led led you to fight this battle. Mm. We talk to people on this podcast who have all made decisions about their lives, often with great cost. When was the moment you knew you had to speak out? Uh, the people who listen to our show, they too have choices to make. So would you mind telling us about the moment you took that leap and, and what it cost you and, and, and what the world looks like on the other side?
0: I hated it because I've spent my entire career being the, the happy celebrator of technology, the, the joy, joyful libertarian uh, celebrating, you know, fast food and fast flowing shower heads and uh, irons in Australia, you know, which are better than us. So uh, that's been my whole life. I read all my books. They're, they're fun but relatively superficial, but they were generally optimistic. Nothing can go wrong. Like a naive, whiggish, 19th century liberal, nothing can go wrong. Everything's perfect. So when I saw the world go a different direction that repudiated and proved me uh, completely incorrect, um, I felt like I had to do something about it. I had to stand up and, and explain it and fight it and make the world operate more like I thought it was supposed to and always had in the course of my lifetime. So it infuriated me because it shattered my dreams. And so I just dedicated myself to, to fighting it. And I didn't realize this battle was going to go on two years. I hardly had no idea I was going to find an entire, found an entire institute devoted to, to this fight. Um, I just woke up every day and said, I hate this darkness. Let's make the light come. So that's why I did what I did. And I don't like it. I don't like the way it's changed me. You know, I, I liked myself before, goofy and happy.
1: Well, I signed the Great Barrington Declaration today. And um, yeah, I just wanted to thank you, Jeffrey, for being involved in that. It was, uh, it was yeah, very meaningful. And uh, I wish I could have been there uh, to add my name. Sorry, I'm getting even choked. It's been five lockdowns, man. I just, uh, yeah, I just wish I could have uh, put my name on that when you needed it. So thank you.
0: It was a good time, and, and you know honestly, I think these the people who, who put that together were, were brave people. They uh, put everything on the line, their careers, their reputations, everything on the line to save, I would say, save civilization. Uh, I'm not sure they understood the price they would pay, um, but they were nonetheless willing to take that risk. And for me, it's a, a model of how to be courageous morally and intellectually. And how that courage can ultimately make a big difference in the stream in the stream of history, and they 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 really did that i i'm I'm pleased to still work with them today.
2: Do you think we'll be talking about the great barrington declaration in in centuries to come
0: yeah, I wonder about that right Is it the magna carta i mean it 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 might be yeah it might be um you know, it's so funny because I remember when Martin came up to and said, but why don't we call it an open letter? I said, no, likes open letters. Those are terrible. And he said, well, what do you think about a declaration? I said, well, that's great. And I came up with every possible name for the declaration. And I had a lot of goofy ones. And he said, why don't we just call it the Great Barrington Declaration? And I said, oh, Christ. I mean, it was written in the town of Great Barrington. And I thought, if you do this, you will cause the town council to go crazy. And, but I wasn't really in a position to say no because there was a great Barrington bakery, there's a great Barrington brewery, there's a great Barrington clothier, and so on. So I thought, why not a Great Barrington Declaration? Well, sure enough, you know, a few months after the thing came out, I got a certified letter from the town council, you know, denouncing the authors and you know everybody associated with it, you know, as being evil and moral and having. Destroyed the town and so on. So property values, meanwhile, are way up in Great Barrington. So I don't think there's any <laughs> <laughs> any, any terrible effects really? from that. But uh, all is well. Yeah, the town will forever be known. But you know, it's it's, it's the, if there's um, the Treaty of Versailles and so, so you know the, things things like this happen. But yeah, I think I think it's very possible Great Barrington Declaration will go down history, unless the uh, powers that be succeed in wiping out all of our memories like an Orwell, you know, memory hole. I don't know. That's part of what I see as my job is just like constantly reminding people what happened and, and trying to figure out ways to prevent it from ever happening again.
1: Well, one of the ways you're doing that is that with the Brownstone Institute. Uh, can you just tell us quickly a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, it was founded uh, last year and went live in August 1st and we're up to, I don't know, 12 million page views or something like that has become an essential uh resource and more and more so all the time I, I get floods of email every day and um you know really nice support uh uh it's 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 and it's a new way i mean I've, i got i get sort of i guess tired of the old tribal identities you know left right even libertarianism they all fail to protect us and so the question is, you know, what kind of philosophical and ideological structure do you need to make the biggest possible difference in the world on behalf of of the idea of of human freedom and and you know a functioning society? So so that was the vision of Brownstone that we're really going to figures figure out a new way to talk about what it means to save civilization from this kind of tyrannical impositions. And so that's what we're doing every day, and it's. It's done ext- extremely well, I must say. I'm very happy with it.
1: I encourage everyone to go and uh, check it out. And you've got a mailing list, don't you?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just sign up on the email list. And I, I, you know, we, we don't have that many workers who are uh, scrambling all the time. But I send about one email a week, which is basically directing directing people to share the articles. Maybe that's going to expand. You know, we've talked about podcasts, and movies, and conferences. You know, all these things. But I'm just just doing what I can when I can do it, I'm not trying to get impatient. I'm, I'm really I'm building for the long term in, in hopes of turning Brownstone into a genuine sanctuary for ideas and for uh, serious intellectuals that are being purged from academia now. So we need that all times and all places. We need it in the Middle Ages and we needed it in the 20th century and we need it in the 21st century.
2: Well, sadly, we, we have come to the end of our interview. Uh, we'd like to finish with, with, with a final selfish question. We'd like to know what you're reading
0: right now. Yeah, I'm reading a book on the history of pandemics. I don't quite remember the name of it, but I'm I'm fascinated by the by the topic. I want to be able to know everything about you know the history of of, of pandemics. So that's that's been my reading right now, which overlaps very much with my own economics training. But economists haven't
1: I need a break. I'm reading Jack Reacher. I don't know. You know, like
0: Well, you know, it's funny, Martin said to me last night because he was talking about some very complicated things about gain-of-function research. And I said, look, this is way beyond my pay grade. He said, he said, Jeffrey, you taught yourself uh, epidemiology, public health, virology, uh, cell biology, uh, and the history of of, uh, 20th century pandemics in in something like less than six weeks. So I know you can do this. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm still learning, still learning.
1: Well. Uh, what do we say thank you so much Jeffrey for being so generous with your time and uh, I know this episode is going to do very well
0: <laughs> <All good>. I'm <laughs> that so was glad electric. thanks thanks, for, thanks uh, for having me and I very much appreciate being in contact with you and let's just try to try to keep hope and look forward to the end of this and I look forward to coming back to Australia
1: oh absolutely yeah we'd love to show you around yeah definitely
0: thank you so much thanks Jeffrey all
2: right thank you